Welcome back, Art World. This is the Art World Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Miss Art World, or Catherine. I have my co-host with me, Lisa. Hey, guys. And this, I always say this is an exciting episode, you, but you this do. is truly an exciting episode because we have Plastic Jesus here with us. How are Hi. you? How Hi, are you? <laughs> good, good. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for coming on and um, welcoming us into your studio. This is awesome. Thank you. All right. So, um... Plastic Jesus is located in LA. Uh, you're originally from Britain? I'm from London originally. London, yeah. okay. And you're anonymous? Yeah, right? I try to keep my identity mm-hmm. pretty secret, yes. Do you know, I, I could guess why, but could you share with us why you choose to keep yourself anonymous? Yeah, there's actually a number of reasons. Um, firstly, some of the work, work I do is illegal and in itself there's there's other work which isn't illegal but you know if you're seen on the street you're seen in a video or you know a video podcast or something they can then tie all the other pieces of work to you i know a guy who um from down in san diego that was arrested and they kicked his door in at four o'clock in the morning and when they took him to the police station to be interviewed they got a whole great file of every other piece of work he'd ever done they'd been building up this yeah, intelligence file oh on him. So, God. you know, although it might be fine to show my face here, you know, if this is mm-hmm. a video type of chat, then, you know, there's all the other stuff that I've done as well. The other reason is as well, which is in a way to do with the, the message that I'm putting out there. I want the piece of art and the message to be self-contained for the message to come over in the mural, in the installation, in the, you know, product bombing, in the actual piece itself. Not... This was done by street artist Plastic Jesus. You know, whenever you see a story about Banksy, the first three or four paragraphs will be about the new piece that he's done in London or Paris or LA or wherever. Mm-hmm. And then there'll be 10 paragraphs after that saying, who is Banksy? You know, the mysterious, you know, elusive yeah. street artist. And that's kind of missed the point. He's doing stuff to get a message over. So, you know, I think if I can avoid that kind of fame and celebrity culture that sometimes art attracts, then great. And I'm not a very... I'm not a very sociable person. I hate people. So if I can hide... <laughs> really? Like a true <laughs> artist. I mean, if I can just but curl you're so up... you nice. yeah. No, it's all a big act. <laughs> if I can just curl up and hide for the rest of my life, that'll suit me fine. <laughs> all right. So um, I have a follow-up question with that. With um, When you do some pieces, um, like the big 3D sculptures, um, for example, the, um, the Oscar doing the cocaine... Yeah. Um, and you're going to install that, do the people putting on the event, are they aware that it's coming in, or is it a surprise? Oh no, it's all done Gorilla Scott style, nobody, nice. nobody knows, it's just myself and a close team, Yeah. you know, that help with the installation sometimes, Some, sometimes I do them by myself anyway, and nobody knows, I just yeah. go out at four o'clock in the morning, you know, I dump the thing on Melrose, and then crawl off home but where there's a team of us it's mm-hmm. only a small small team because you know I, I don't want cops there in waiting yeah. for us or or in the oscars you know in the case of the oscar piece i don't want the what is it called the board of commerce or change yeah. change of commerce be to be there waiting you know to pull us away when we when we land there you know mm-hmm. that's got to be um kind of an adrenaline rush or are you used to it at this point with the um with the installation pieces yeah i'm kind of used to it i think okay. because Realistically, if 
if the authorities come, if the cops come and you're doing an installation, probably they'll just tell you to clear it up and, and fuck off. Yeah. You know, it's unlikely that they'll put you in cuffs. I mean, they could do. They're entitled yeah. to, you know, legally they, they could do. Um, but believe me, the, the 4 a.m., you know, nighttime mural run yeah. along Melrose still has the same adrenaline. Every time you go yeah. out, you don't know if that's the time you're going to be busted. So the adrenaline's still there and yeah. the relief once you get the piece up and you're heading off home. For sure. Are those, awesome. when you're doing a more of a mural, is it usually very quick that you're just running in, spraying or painting and then running out? Or does it take you a couple hours? Um, no, I mean, I try and get the pe- The longer you're out there for, the more chance you stand of getting busted. Most street artists that I know that have been busted are literally caught with a spray can in their hand at you know, midnight or 2 a.m. or whatever Dang. time they're out. It's not a concerted investigation effort, other than, you know, unlike the, the guy down in San Diego mm-hmm. I was telling you about. Usually it's them getting caught. So I try and do a piece as quickly as I can. Um, I'm... One of these people that lays out lists, that lays out things, that lays out projects. So what I actually do is I'll have the the stencil, the spray paints, the duct tape, the scissors, everything laid out in my truck almost to military precision. So it's, it's just a matter of, right, I want the black can first, that's there. I need the white can second, I need the gray can third, you know, I need the duct tape first. Even down to things like, you know, if you're holding a stencil against a wall, you can't do it with masking tape, it'll fall off, so you use duct tape. Okay. Now, duct tape is noisy when you peel it off the roll, so what I'll do is I'll peel the duct tape off the roll in four-inch pieces and, and stick it down the length of my leg. So then when I'm there in front of the wall, I just peel a piece off my leg silently and put it up yeah. on the stencil. So even down to little things like that, just, you know, if you can save 10 seconds, you save 10 seconds. Absolutely. Yeah. Has there ever been, like, a close call or... Have you been caught and they let you go because they were nice cops? Or? Yeah, well, I was, I was arrested in London a few years ago. I was doing uh, in Camden in North London. And I should have known London has got so many CCTV cameras all over the place. And in particular, Camden in North London. I mean, the place is absolutely flooded with CCTV cameras. But I went out I went out at 4 a.m. and got arrested. They'd seen me and they'd seen the car I was getting into and radioed the license plate through and arrested me. And the cop who arrested me was actually quite apologetic because I was doing Stop Making Stupid People Famous. He said, he said, buddy, I agree with what you're putting up there. He said, but I can't agree with the way you've done it, so I'm going yeah. to arrest you. So oh, they took me in, they gave me a caution. And, yeah, I admitted to it. There's no point. You know, they got me bangs of rights, as we say. And um, they let me go a few hours later. And he said to me, he said, don't quote me on the record, he said, but you know, next time don't do it in Camden, Camden yeah. and you get away with it. <laughs> Keep and, doing it, just not here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there was a time on Melrose I was caught as well. I'm normally very good. I, as a journalist, I used to do a lot of investigation work, mm-hmm. which often would include stakeouts. Now, sitting silently in a van or even in bushes on you know some crime investigation, fully camoed up with long lenses and binoculars, all that kind of stuff. So I'm very good at using my ears. So if I'm on Melrose, you can hear a car coming at night time long before you can see it so you know if I hear a car at one in the Melrose I'll get out of sight all my paints are always hidden until I'm actually using that one can but on this occasion uh, a cop car with its very slow running uh, you know V8 engine kind of rolled down a street opposite to where I was painting I didn't hear it and they questioned me they cuffed me they sat me in the back of the cop car um and after, you know, 10 minutes of questioning and radioing through, find out there's no warrants, they let me go. I think the English accent helped. Mm. And 
the cop did say to me at the time, once they took my driver's license and checked it through, they said, you know, hey, we're surprised how old you are, because I'm like 50. I said, dude, I'm surprised how old I am. <laughs> Seriously. I just keep getting older. Yeah, it just happens. Happening. I don't know where it all went. Yeah. I'm mad about it too. <laughs> That's awesome. So um, what was, I don't know, your breaking point or when you switched from journalism to art? Like what was, when did you make that big switch? I was... I came here to the US in 2007 as a news photographer in the UK. I'd got an agency that I ran, my own agency, with five photographers and reporters working for me. I came out here on a few assignments, and it was, it was I think, the last time I came here before I moved was like November. And I was on Sunset Boulevard. I'd had lunch with my brother, who was already living out here, and it was beautiful. The sun was shining. Now, if you've ever been to London in November, you'll know <laughs> that it's none of those things. Yeah. So it was a pretty easy decision to yeah. make, so I packed things up. Um, moved over here and I was doing a lot of investigation work I was doing a lot of kind of news feature work the type of stuff that goes across two pages in the middle of the newspaper which was great you know I was doing a lot for the uh, the mail on Sunday and uh, other other newspapers this type of stuff where we'd fly to somewhere in in the US and we'd spend two three four days doing this feature for a Sunday newspaper Um, but more and more of the assignments outside of those that I were getting were becoming reality show celebrity based which you know as, as a news photographer you do but it's the what we call the proper jobs the real news jobs that keep your san- sanity mm-hmm. and those celebrity type jobs were becoming more and more and the real jobs were becoming fewer and fewer now the reason behind that is because you know you put a picture of you know from the war in syria or libya you know a few years back on the front of a newspaper nobody gives a damn you put Kim Kardashian on the front of mm-hmm. People magazine or Life and Style and In Touch, and the circulation goes up by tens of thousands, and you know everybody over the media is talking about it. So magazines and newspapers realize where they've got to focus their attention. So I was getting more and more of this celebrity stuff, and it really wasn't my thing. So I started looking at other ways to convey thoughts, feelings, opinions. I'd always been a big, uh, a big fan of Banksy, um, not just what he does and how he does it, but the messages he gets over in sometimes a very simple single mm-hmm. color stencil. You know, yeah, great, it's a good picture. But then you think about actually the meaning behind that is quite deep. There's a lot of thought that's gone into that. I remember I'd always been a fan of, of whether you call it graffiti or street art. And I remember as a child, um, I was probably about seven or eight, driving around London with my parents and going through North London. And there was a big wall outside Lord's Cricket Ground and it had painted on it in a big wide brush or roller somebody had painted George Davis is innocent. Now this piece of graffiti during the 70s became famous. It was, uh, George Davis was somebody who was accused of armed robbery and I thought well if he's innocent why don't his family and friends just go to the police and tell them he's innocent or why don't they go to the newspapers and I kind of realized at that point that that's not the way it works, that there's you know other ways of protesting things, there's other ways to get messages out there. So that was probably when the seeds of subversive art or subversive street art was, was, was I suppose, laid for want of a better word. Um, the, the transition for me was really just, you know, I was, uh, as I say, a bit bored with news photography and looking for other ways to get things out there. I've always been very creative making things, so street art was really a natural progression for me. 
Definitely. Um, and was um, Stop Making Stupid People Famous your first piece? Well, yes and no. Okay. It was my first piece, but not my first piece of street art. Stop Making Stupid People Famous actually comes back from my journalism days. When I was going through this period of disillusionment with, with media, there was a piece in the Huffington Post about how mainstream media is now becoming reality TV show mm-hmm. media. And I wrote a comment piece on that saying, explaining that, um, you know, if we want better quality media, we should stop making stupid people famous. Now, whenever that piece gets posted on Instagram or whatever, it's always tagged with, you know, Kardashian or whoever. But it was never intended to be a criticism of those people. It's intended to be a criticism of us. We are the people who are making stupid people famous. We are buying the magazines, logging onto the websites, watching the TV shows. We are the guilty ones. Absolutely. We're buying into it. Exactly. And then I started doing street art, and I figured that was really quite a powerful statement, and it just works well with the whole of what I'm conveying out there, really, I think. That's incredible. Yeah. Would you uh, say that that's probably your uh, most popular piece of art, or is there one that kind of stands out that people really recognize you for immediately? No, I think think it's that, um, which, you know... I'm both embarrassed and proud of, you know, I'm glad that a message has got out there so great, but it's, it's a bit kind of, of a tabloid message, really. Let's face it, it's not a Picasso or it's not a Van Gogh or anything, you know. You think of the sunflowers or you think of, of the scream, you know, you think of a great piece of art. So to call myself an artist having created that is no great boast on my part. Oh. But it's a message which is clearly resonating yeah. with people. Yeah. You know, every day I get up and my social media and my news alerts are tagged because that has been posted and reposted and mm-hmm. liked and retweeted. I mean, it's literally millions of times now that that piece has has been put out there and, and re, re, you know, reposted. Well, it's, I think that's so important because it is hitting home to so many people. I mean, that's huge as an artist to have your message understood and passed on. Yeah, at the end of the day, as a, as a, as a you know, as an artist, you the message you want to convey is is within your piece, whether it's a political message or a message of beauty or a message of geometry or whatever. You know, it's a message. So the fact that it's getting out there, great, and hopefully, you know, it brings other people to my work and they can see other stuff I do. Uh, Speaking of uh, messages, so you have pieces in galleries as well, right? Do you find that people react to those pieces differently because of the setting? So versus um, a gallery versus um, like coming across it in the street? Yeah, you know, I have pretty... um pretty strong feelings about galleries uh, I work with a number of galleries here, uh, here well across the world really and I'm very careful about the galleries I choose they're not the biggest galleries I could go with other agents and galleries that could probably sell way more but all the gallery owners I work with I would consider friends and trustworthy the first gallery I started with which was uh, in, in London in Wharton Street in West London were doing incredibly well selling my art to collectors and investors and so on and then after a period of time, I found they were actually charging three times what they were reporting to me. Holy and then what? paying me 50% of that. Yeah. Dang. I was naive. God. I just got into art. I knew nothing about the business. And there's other things they were doing as well that were done purely to maintain their monopoly on my art as well and, and restrict any clients coming straight to me. Um, so, you know, I've got a very honest and open relationship with galleries. If a client comes to me and said, hey, I saw your piece in Krauss Gallery or Walkspace LA or something, um, you know, can I buy it direct? I say, well, you can, 
but the sale's got to go through them or they get the price you're paying is still the same mm -hmm. because you know it's it's a long-term relationship i have with these galleries and as i say i classify them as friends but going back to your question more about the setting of a gallery firstly as an artist you want a wide audience as possible sometimes that's not in the interest of a gallery how many galleries have got you know buzzers on the doors or by appointment only is pretty standard within the industry so that doorway to that gallery is immediately a filter for who can come through and who can see your art i don't like that that really goes against my principles and the messages that i want to get out there it works well for the galleries because they're kind of maintaining or building this exclusivity about your work which they have to do to really um create any position in the world for them otherwise you know a gallery has absolutely no value whatsoever but i think things are changing with with social media i get a lot of people that come that find me through social media that come directly to me and i can then build a relationship with them and by building a relationship i don't don't just mean a business relationship i mean a personal relationship they give me feedback on my work or give me suggestions or give me feedback onto things that i've done whether they agree or disagree you know both are valid you know is, is a is a valid part of a relationship and i think it's it's so important for an artist to get that feedback and if you know a gallery is there with this entry phone on the door not telling you who your work is sold to not telling you feedback from the client or what the client's looking for that's not good for an artist you're just there producing art to fulfill that gallery's need to sell dang so what is um one piece of advice that you would give a new emerging artist um in your medium or not dealing with galleries what's one of the biggest pieces of advice you would give them go and get a real job <laughs> no seriously there's there's a lot of advice i can give them and firstly i would say if you're a new artist and you're looking to get with a gallery a gallery will take on a new artist for two reasons firstly because they're undiscovered and the gallery can make a lot of money saying we've discovered the next mm -hmm. picasso the next Liechtenstein, or the next rembrandt or whatever and they will then create this almost exclusive monopoly, this exclusive funnel for clients to buy your work. Now, the, the value of all artwork is subjective, so the value of your work will be whatever that one exclusive gallery will tell clients it's worth, and they can do a very good job selling your work. The issue comes then is if you decide to part company with that gallery, you have no sales mechanism or marketing mechanism of your own because everything's been coming through that gallery. So why it might be good short term it might not be so good on the long term also if you're working exclusively with a gallery uh you know you're you're limited you're you're limiting your exposure so sometimes when you start you might be better just getting blitzing out not working exclusively with any one gallery try to work at the lower end of the market even lower price point because then you know if you're trying to sell a canvas for ten thousand dollars you might find one person that can buy it however if you're selling an edition of 10 canvases at one thousand dollars each that's 10 homes that piece can go into mm -hmm. that's 10 people's lives you're connecting with so sometimes it's better to work that way and just build a wider network than perhaps an exclusive gallery can do um the other thing is that i can give advice to people in terms of working with galleries Galleries are going to want something from you. So it's either that exclusivity and the chance to earn a lot of money having discovered you. Or there's the other thing they're going to want is know that you can bring something to the equation, to the relationship. So if you go to a gallery and say, hey, I've painted these three canvases. Do you like them? Would you like to sell them to me for me? 
gallery, this guy tell you to piss off. You know, they got. But if you can go to a gallery and say, "Hey, I've been doing art for two years. My pieces started selling for five hundred bucks, and now selling for two thousand bucks. I've got a collector base of." 300 people i've got 2000 people on my newsletter that are dying for me to do a show and expand my work and collection and so on then you've got something you're going to them with you're bringing something to the equation i love that advice mm -hmm. um and i feel like that's something that we've heard from some of our other artists who we've talked to who have been successful in the art world um it's not as easy as just applying to a call for art and writing an artist statement but it's making those long-term connections and being professional giving the analytics and the full picture of what you're providing to create that partnership. Yeah, I mean, if any if any artists are on Instagram now, I mean, it doesn't, if you go to your profile, go to insights and go to your audience, you can see that, you know, 30% of your audience are aged between 24 and 35 and they're 65% male, 35% female, 80% of them are in New York or Los Angeles and 27% are in London or whatever. All these analytics are there. And if you go to a gallery, you know, it won't really change the way they're going to market you, but it will show that you know your business and you know your audience. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. When you're traveling, uh, do you go out and make street art wherever you're going, or is it kind of exclusively in London and L.A.? Um, to be quite since I've been doing street art, I've been to Paris, and I've done some paste ups there and some stickers in Paris. I've been to London. I haven't traveled. I used to travel all the time as a news photographer. I spent, you know... Shit, 20 years of my life in airports so I'm quite happy yeah. not to travel now <laughs> to be honest but yeah I always try and leave a mark in some city that I go to uh, which is which is a whole new thing in itself because loading my my truck up with paint at the end of the day ready for a four o'clock you know stencil run 4 a.m stencil run is one thing but then taking everything to London or New York or Paris or wherever and then thinking, right, I'm going out to do a stencil tonight. I've got to find a shop where I can buy paint. Yeah. I've got to find, you know, barley scenes. I've got to have a look at CCTV in the street. So it's a whole other thing, really, when you go somewhere else to do it as well. Mm -hmm. um, is the CCTV, are, are those just cameras that are up on streets in London? Yeah, they're all, yeah, street junctions, big street junctions. And they're usually monitored by a private security company. Wow. And if they see anything taking place, they just call up the cops, yeah. That's yeah. crazy. It's impossible to get from one side of London to the other way out. I think you get spotted by, I think it's 4,000 cameras now oh if you go from goodness. one side of London to the other. It's incredible, yeah. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah. When you're in a brand new city, when you travel, um, do you just kind of walk around and find a wall or a place that speaks to you? Or is there more of a strategic, uh, rather, other than the camera portion? Well, but... I mean, both are true. Really, you know, when... When I'm doing street art, when I've got a piece in mind or a piece prepared to do, as I'm driving around a city, I'm looking for a wall that your eyes naturally fall on. You know, subconsciously, unconsciously, as we're driving around somewhere, there's a wall that you just happen to notice. If people got to crook their neck up high on the roof of a building to see on some wall that's adjacent, you know, tangent to the street, well, that's no good for me. It's got to be somewhere as you come around a corner or you drive along the street, there's that wall there. So what I'll do is I'll find somewhere, I'll then look for CCTV, I'll then look for cover where I can park my truck or vehicle and hide materials while I'm doing it, um, and so on. So yeah, it's, it's kind of both. It's, strategically, it's got to be a good high visibility wall, but it's got to be one that I can do without getting busted, ideally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When um, you're in Los Angeles, do you prefer working with stencils or um, like the 3D installments? 3D. Yeah, yeah no, they no. are really cool. Yeah. I love I love making things, physical things. 
um, as, as a child, I was always making things out of wood. We had a little workshop bench in the garage at home just outside London. And I'd be out there. I, m- I remember one year, I think it was probably like November or December, there was snow on the ground. I got my little fur hooded parker yeah. on, you know. I was probably uh, about nine or ten years old. And I was out there at this woodwork bench trying to make a box. And it was so cold, I couldn't feel my hands. And I remember going into the house crying my eyes out because I couldn't make something because it was so cold so so from quite an early age I've always liked you know making physical things and you know technically a lot of the things I make aren't that difficult to actually produce but it's the connection between having that concept whether it's you know a 12 foot long line of cocaine in the street or if it's a you know six foot by four foot mousetrap it's having that idea that concept and then perhaps walking around Home Depot and finding what you can use to make it. Yeah. And in fact, when I, you know, I live here in Hollywood. My second home is the studio. My third home is probably Home Depot. I hate their <laughs> fucking politics, but I love, I love what they've got in their store. And, you know, even if I'm out there buying something, I'll walk around the rest of the store looking at stuff and thinking, oh, that could work as a machine gun or that could work as a, you know, as a broken yeah. whatever. So I'm always looking for things that I could use in some art in the future. I love that. Do you always get the 3D installations back or do they usually are taken by other people or? Um, usually I get them back. Um, I've had, um, there was, I, I did, in fact, there was a piece on Melrose outside Urban Outfitters, which I did, which was, as I mentioned earlier, 12 foot long lines of cocaine, mm-hmm. a big six foot by eight foot credit card, and then an eight foot tall $100 bill sticking out the ground. Of course, people were posing up with it. And I, I like, as a former news photographer, I like to sit watching at some distance and looking at people's reaction. In fact, that piece, I, I'm sure two people hooked up. There's this guy there and this girl that are looking at it, laughing and taking selfies. And the girl gives the, her phone to the guy to take a photo. And then I can see they're, they're, they're exchanging numbers. So Aww. who knows where they are now? <laughs> yeah. But hopefully they found love and got babies <laughs> and things. But um, I remember watching that piece and this guy and his buddy on a skateboard. One guy was on the bike and guy was on a skateboard with him. They stopped, looked, took some photos. And then the guy on the skateboard bent down and, and ripped the big credit card off the ground and started skateboarding down the street. So I was in my truck and I just chased him down the street and confronted him. He was really apologetic. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, most, most things I get back. But what I do do, if I'm not watching it from a safe distance, you know, for security or whatever, what I will do is I'll keep an eye on it going back every so often because if a piece gets damaged or broken, I don't want it out there. If it doesn't look good, if it yeah. gets fucked up, you know, I'll, I'll go and, uh, and remove it. The other thing about doing installations as well is, you know, you want them to be secure enough that everybody can enjoy them. But if you secure them too much, the city's going to send you a bill for $100,000 yeah. for repaving the footpath, and you kind of need to avoid that as well. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do, a lot of your work um, does have to do with cocaine. Yeah. Oh, um, that was my next question. Yeah. <laughs> um, you guys are getting excited about cocaine. I know. <laughs> well, I think it's such an interesting um, topic that you work on because you're really calling out the issues with um, the industry's addiction to it, how yeah. prevalent it is, how it's almost a norm in Los Angeles, which um, has always been very weird to me. We talked about it on our way down. Um, I didn't grow up in Los Angeles, and I didn't go to school down here. I went to school in Oregon, and it's just I was shocked when I came down and saw how accessible it was, how many people were doing it. 
and how that really does start with you see it in the movies and you see it becoming almost this normal thing. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, and so is that kind of, I don't want to answer the question or that's kind of my take on the pieces, but, um, I wanted to hear from you too, the message behind it and. Yeah. You know, I, I'd be honest that, uh, I tried cocaine in my mid twenties. I was pretty late comer to it and it gave me such a suicidal depression and anxiety the next day, uh, that Jesus, you know, it nearly destroyed me just that one time. And then I was on a few journalism jobs where we're, where we were investigating drug dealers and, and, you know, we had to go out with them. They were, they think we were dealers and we were Mm -hmm. having to do cocaine and, you know, freaking hated the stuff to be honest. But it's so, so that's just me from a personal point of view. I don't do it because I don't like it. Simple as that. But it's so prevalent within society. Now in 2000 and 2017, cocaine in the US outsold Coca-Cola. But if you go around to people openly in public and say, hey, do you do cocaine? Everybody will deny it. Well, we're selling more than Coca-Cola. Somebody's doing a shitload of cocaine somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it's there, it's in society, but we don't talk about it. You know, we have this war on drugs that's been going on for decades, which clearly isn't working. We've got all this situation now currently with, with immigration due to the, the situations in, 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 in Mexico and Central America. Well, a lot of those situations are caused by Americans' addiction to drugs that are coming here illegally. So you can't blame the people in the, the, those countries for the deprivation, the gangs and the trafficking that's going on. You know, we are to blame. We're buying the stuff every Friday night before we go clubbing. So the point of some of my pieces of, of cocaine is really to highlight that. In fact, going back to that one on Melrose, those 12 foot long lines of cocaine, the purpose behind that was that people would say, it, 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 it was kind of, I wanted to connect with people in a number of ways. Firstly, I wanted people to say, wow, this is fucking crazy. You know, this yeah. is, you know, all this cocaine on the street. But there were people who were coming out of Urban Outfitters or Starbucks who were walking straight past this, not even noticing it. I thought, what a great metaphor that is. Yeah. You've got so much cocaine in society and nobody's noticing it. Nobody's talking about it. You know. Dang. So really, that's where my angle for it comes. Yeah. I'm... You know, I think we need to, we need to have a dialogue. We need to possibly legalize a lot of drugs out there. You know, the drugs that, we the drugs that we legalize. You know, alcohol, tobacco. You know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, are controlled. It's a it's a lot cleaner. You know, it's yeah. a lot. You know, in the in the way it's it's controlled. There's there's also not the 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 horrific number of deaths and and crime that goes on associated with those drugs. So we need to change things. Um, a lot of your other work that I've seen has to do um, with politics, mainly with Trump. Um, are you, do you make those pieces to have a stance on certain issues, or are you making them more to challenge people to think about what they believe with politics? Well, until Trump came into the political scene yeah my stuff was political but it was more done in a way to say to people hey look at what we're doing let's consider what we're doing let's think possibly about other routes then um trump came onto the scene and i realized that i was trying to be impartial but no because a lot of what he was doing just goes totally against my beliefs my morals and ethics that you know you have to stand up and say 
you know, fuck you to some people sometimes to get them to, to listen. So that really, that's why I changed there on in terms of the Trump stuff, because I think that we need to call people out. We need to hold authority to higher standards and question what they're doing, why they're doing, and what the short-term and long-term goal and gains are. And I don't think we're doing that enough. Um, too many politicians are getting away with far too much, and we just accept it. Um, so really, that's that's why I call out um, so much in, t- in terms of politics, really, uh, with my work. For me, it's a major thing. I'm a real news junkie, and in fact, um, I, I only last week I deleted all the news apps off my phone because I'd I'd take uh, I'd take my stepson to school, which was thirty minutes there, thirty minutes back, and I have CNN on. I'd come in here, I'd put on a news podcast. Uh, you know, I, I was probably listening and reading three, four hours of news a day, and it's not good for your mental health doing that. It's really not switch the news off for a few days listen to some listen to some chill house music or some 70s groove <laughs> yeah. and the world is a much better place yeah. mm-hmm. well especially when the news is so polarizing right now totally yep. totally like, but it's too believe me to be inundated yeah if you stop listening if, you, if you're like me fixated by the news and you're listening to every spit and cough on cnn or fox you probably won't be listening to this if you, <laughs> if you listen to fox but whatever you know there's so much analyzing done on a minute detail Turn the news off for a day or two. Come back to it. And everything that's gone in those two days doesn't mean a toss. Nothing's changed. You haven't really missed anything. I'm not saying don't engage with it, but don't engage in the detail we're doing. Mm -hmm. I like that message a lot. With uh, your newer work, so we're in your studio, which is super cool, and one of my favorite pieces that you recently posted is the Red Balloon. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about kind of your newer work and where you're going with that and thought process? And Well, I think the, um, the balloon came about actually from Art Basel in Miami last year. I was part of a small show there and the theme was love stories. And I was invited to be part of this show and I thought, well, how does my political, social commentary news work? How can I do something on love stories? Yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of not really... So what I did there was I, I wanted something with a kind of ironic twist to it. So what I actually created for that was three balloons, one with a Band-Aid on it, one with a stiletto heel embedded in it, and one with a knife in it. And each one had a hang tag on it with an ex-girlfriend's name from it. So oh it gosh. kind of, it had that Where irony that names? my work was. <laughs> I just told, I told my girlfriend they were just random names. That I just, they were, they were. In fact, some of my ex-girlfriends on social media commented. Oh. <laughs> they were cool with that. Yeah. They were cool. Um, so that was a way in which I could bring some kind of ironic, almost subversive humour to something which, as a, as a theme of a show, you wouldn't immediately think yeah. of. Now, some of the other things I've been doing recently, uh, one of the pieces I, I released just the other day was a, a, a panel with Boom with like a, a Batman type of explosion on it. And that was a conscious effort to get my head out of the political space. If I think back to pre-Trump days, you know, I was doing generic you know, things about graffiti, things about fame, things about drugs. And then for the past two and a half, nearly three years, my head's been so much in that political space, I needed to get out of it and yeah. have some fun. I think as an artist as well, that if, mm-hmm. if your work is critical of society, you can't let that take you over. 
there is a world outside that and you have to remind yourself and that's why I'm doing with the balloons making things which hopefully are beautiful to look at look great in people's home shit they're not going to change the world they're not intended to just mm -hmm. have fun with it on your wall you know that's awesome um, so the balloon piece is it actually a balloon no I'm it's... so curious <laughs> <laughs> it looks so real <laughs> well if you want to pick that one up you're welcome to it's actually cast from an acrylic resin oh, wait. the bold was from the, the mold was made from a, a genuine Mylar balloon oh cool and then they're cast from that but they're pretty heavy I think they weigh about five pounds oh wow you would have no idea oh, yeah I really didn't know how much it was gonna weigh okay yeah they're super cool this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so they're a life-size, you know, plastic uh, replica of a, of, a, of a Mylar balloon, and they kind of look pretty cool on the wall. Hopefully yeah. people enjoy them, yeah. I love it. Such a cool piece. You got it, buddy? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> I'm here. I'm not tripping on any cords. Um, so one of the other questions we had for you, uh, you've been starting to work um, in selling clothes more, um, a shoe line, you have your yeah. shirts. Yeah. Um, where did that inspiration come from? Was it kind of with um, Shepherd Fairy? Yeah, Shepherd Shepherd Fairy has been so incredibly successful with mm -hmm. Obey Clothing. But for me, it was more of a organic transition. I started uh, stop making stupid people famous. I put that on a T-shirt, and over the past four or five years, I'd sold thousands of those T-shirts, and without which. You know, I, uh, which for a t-shirt company, the number I've sold probably isn't very impressive, but for an artist, it is. You know, it's, it's pretty good. So that kind of showed me that people like messages, mm -hmm. these kind of subversive messages on clothing. But the, the clothing, the collection, which is you guys can actually see on the studio wall there, um, the idea of that was when I was in my early 20s, I was into new wave music. I was heavily into music. And in terms of style, I would buy my clothes from vintage stores. I'd buy ex former military clothing and then alter it. You know, I was a guy that would walk into the pub and people would say, hey, look at this weirdo in his <laughs> calf shirt and combat pants and, and boots or World War II jacket or whatever. I was that guy. Yeah. And yeah, I was different. I stood out and I was actually really proud of that. You know, as I've got older, shit, you know, it, you, you, you mellow mm -hmm. and I'm not happy buying my clothes from Urban Outfitters or American Apparel and wearing that and Levi's you know I want to go back to that that guy that walked in the bar and everybody said wow that guy's weird yeah. <laughs> so really that's where the streetwear comes from and it's it's also inspired from my experiences as a news photographer I started in London covering protests and demos and civil unrest and, and riots and people on those demonstrations some of them were living in squats you know run down buildings working you know building this kind of subversive network of anarchists and so on they had a certain dress code about them and that dress code showed they were anarchic and rebellious you know it's often hoodies and bandanas around their faces black combat pants, Dr. Martin boots, you know, sometimes with chains hanging and stuff like that. And it says something about those people. And I think our clothes say something about us all. And I think, sadly, I think our clothes far too often say he shops at Urban Outfitters or, you know, yeah. or Gap. We need to get out of that. We need to show what we're wearing. And I think, sorry, we need to show what we mean and what we feel by what we're wearing. And I think, people are starting to realize this as well and I think companies are realizing that 
purely for a commercial basis, this is this is a good start. You know, like Nike backing Colin Kaepernick, Levi's are putting a lot of money into gun control, as are Tom's, you know, the shoe people. Mm-hmm. People are realizing that people actually want to literally wear their heart on their sleeve in the form of clothes that they wear. They want to align to a political or cultural cause by what they wear. So, you know, if you buy, once the streetwear range is, it, my collection is launched, you know, if you buy it, it will say something about you, that you are standing up. You are standing up and questioning authority and establishment. You are prepared to speak out. I love that. And um, just like from my perspective as well, I love that as like a younger millennial um, I might not be able to afford one of your pieces that were up at Art Basel, but I can still support an artist and someone I respect and look up to and, and rep a t-shirt and, and continue yeah. on that message. So I really like that you're doing that. I think it's so smart and connects you to your audience um, even more. Yeah, I think it's that's really why I've done it. I do that and a lot of galleries um, will say don't touch low price items you know you've got to keep your high high prices there people don't want to see you selling coffee mugs and t-shirts and 150 dollar prints i say the complete opposite you know if somebody likes my work they have as much right as that multi-millionaire to buy a piece it shows that they're supporting me which i appreciate greatly and and couldn't do what i do without but also you know it, it says something to that person as well that you know i'm not there working for you know, I—I I, I be honest. I get some of my art that's bought by investors and collectors that buy it. They get it shipped. It gets wrapped and gets put in their storage, and they hope that one day I'll be the next Banksy and it'll be worth, you know, literally millions. Mm-hmm. But for me, if somebody comes to me and they send me a direct message or an email and says, "Hey, I love that print. How much is it?" And I go back to them with the price. They say, "Oh, dude, I can't afford that at the moment." And then they come back in six months later, say, "Hey, I've been putting money aside from my." my wages, my pay packet every week or every month, can I have one of those prints? That means way more Absolutely. than anybody just doing wire transferring up thousands for a canvas. You know, yeah. that, that means way more to me. I think that goes back to your kind of street art philosophy where art should be for everyone and not just for a select few, which I think is very important uh, because it should be something that anyone could connect to. Well, exactly. Uh, you asked me earlier about street art in galleries, and, and, and you know, I've been to gallery shows where they have street art, and sometimes they'll make a fake concrete wall and they'll get that stenciled by the artists that are there. I mean, it just looks ridiculous. You know, street art was never intended to be on a, a plain white wall with spotlights being viewed by somebody with his arms folded and choking his chin with a cashmere sweater over his shoulders. <laughs> That's what, not what street art was intended yeah. for. Um, and the mere fact that street art is illegal and the statement by doing it, is that, that's a statement in itself. So I think that doesn't come over too well when you're on expensive high-end galleries. Mm-hmm. Do you think that street art will always be illegal? Or do you think that we're moving towards it being more accepted? It kind of depends. You look at some cities around the world that have got the most amazing murals. Mm-hmm. Yet they still have rules in terms of vandalism, uh, which is which is fucking crazy. You know, you can go and put up, uh, you know, a hundred foot by thirty foot billboard advertising firearms in some states, alcohol in some states, prostitution in some states. But then you go go and write love and peace on an electrical box with a spray can, and you get arrested for it. You know, it's fucking crazy. Yeah. And you know, in fact, LA itself has this schizophrenic 
a response to you know street art. There's so many great murals here, and you go down the arts district, or you go to Melrose. People go there to see the fucking street art. But the same chief of police is saying that you know, first of all, the graffiti and taggers come in, and then the prostitutes and the drug dealers come into the area. Well, you know, you got to decide what's good for the city, and I think we know what's good for the city. You know, absolutely, because um, we've talked about it on a few episodes about how um, there's studies that have been shown that if there's a mural or street art up, those areas tend to actually clear out the drug use and um, prostitution because it's bringing more attention because people want to go and connect and be with the art. Um, And I think there's a huge difference between graffiti and street art. Yeah. Um, And I'd be interested to see where we are in five years. Mm-hmm. Well, a good example of that is actually on Melrose Avenue here in LA. There's mm-hmm. a, a parking lot next to a shoe store, quite a famous shoe store called Sporty LA. And when I started doing street art about six years ago, that parking lot had, I think, homeless people were sleeping in there. There was taggers that were doing it. There was a lot of vandalism going on there. Uh, Eddie Donaldson, who's a big name here in street art uh, in, in LA, started curating it. Since then, it's been moved on to other people. And yeah, the, the the wall panels are, I guess, eight foot wide or something. And what they do is they allow an artist to have a wall panel for a period of time. So it's actually curated now, and it's become a tourist attraction. You go out there any day, and there'll be a whole line of people coming to pose and photograph the street art. And um, yeah, it's a much more pleasant place now. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, and we'll post all of these um, locations that we're talking about on our Instagram, Art World Podcast. If people are looking for you, how do they find you? The best way is on Instagram, which is at Plastic Jesus. For me, that's great because it's very much a visual communication, visual mm-hmm. medium, so that works really well. So that's the best place to start. My website is PlasticJesus.com, so stuff there in the store there as well if they want to come and buy T-shirts or $10,000 canvases, it's all there. <laughs> yeah. Something for everyone. Exactly. Awesome. Um, Any last questions? I think I'm good. I just want to say thank you very much for uh, being willing to meet with us and be on our podcast. We were so excited to have you. Um, It's been my absolute pleasure. It really has. (laughs) Lisa's been bragging to everyone in our office. I have been. She's like, you know who we're interviewing? Plastic Jesus. I and they were every like, day. Oh. I went to my, my boss. I was like, uh, I'm going to be in um, like four hours late. She was like, okay. And I was like, I, I have an interview with Plastic Jesus. So, uh, <laughs> it, you know, it's a big deal. <laughs> she was very supportive. <laughs> it, it's funny because I get, you know, I, I don't, as I say, if I could crawl away and hide from people, yeah. I probably would. <laughs> and then occasionally I'll get somebody that will post something on Instagram and I'll respond to their post and they post like, oh my God, it's you, you answered me. And yeah. I, just, I, just, kind of, I just find it all a bit embarrassing. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sorry there. to embarrass you, but uh, we were amped. <laughs> it's, it's so nice and I think that's one of the things that we like about Instagram is you can connect to these artists that you think you'll never be able to connect to because they're just seem so far away or they're so busy and then when I think you liked a photo yeah that we posted of one of our other artists wearing your shirt and we were like dang he just liked our photo we were so excited (laughs) and it's that connection that is so I think people love about art and artists and getting to know them is that you know who they are and if they connect to you you just get 
very excited. I think that connection is so important. I get a lot of media requests, whether it's CNN, BBC, mm-hmm. Huffington Post, which is great. Obviously, it's great for a business point of view and profile point of view. But the ones which I like are those those ones that come from eighth grade, ninth grade, tenth yeah. grade <laughs> students saying they're studying art, they get involved in culture and politics. Could they interview me? They're the ones that mean something. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Awesome. All right. Well, we love you guys. Bye. Bye.